This is Pascal, and you're listening to Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM. reports of child abuse per day. This is how many reports have been sent out to Quebec's Youth Protection Services in 2015. When we hear such alarming numbers, our first thought is immediately drawn to removing the children from their environment and placing them for adoption. Well, on today's episode, I wanted to find out if there were alternatives to family separation. Last month, I was traveling through the UK and I had the chance to meet with Rebecca Reynolds. She's a nurse who works closely with vulnerable young families. Part of her job is to support mothers under the age of 19 in all sorts of ways that ultimately reduces risks of child neglect and abuse. Even though the program she's part of has been proven to work internationally, it's now being threatened of being dismantled in the UK after only a decade of being in place. The reason? Austerity measures. But before speaking with Rebecca, I'd like to introduce you to Hilary Cottam. She's an internationally acclaimed innovator and social entrepreneur. Hillary's work has touched the lives of many thousands. At its heart, a simple idea, that if we start with people and their human connections, we can bring about radical social change. In her award-winning works, she rethinks the systems that support the aging population, she redesigns prisons that reduce reoffending, and also she finds new approaches to chronic disease and unemployment. She caught my attention back in 2015 when she gave a TED Talk on solutions to repair our broken social services. Here's what Hillary has to say. I want to tell you three stories about the power of relationships to solve the deep and complex social problems of this century. You know, sometimes it seems like all these problems of poverty, inequality, ill health, unemployment, violence, addiction, they're right there in one person's life. So I want to tell you about someone like this that I know. I'm going to call her Ella. Ella lives in a British city on a rundown estate. The shops are closed, the pub's gone, the playground's pretty desolate and never used. And inside Ella's house, the tension is palpable and the noise levels are deafening. The TV's on at full volume, one of her sons is fighting with one of her daughters, another son, Ryan, is keeping up this constant stream of abuse from the kitchen, and the dogs are locked behind the bedroom door and straining. Ella is stuck. She has lived with crisis for 40 years. She knows nothing else and she knows no way out. She's had a whole series of abusive partners, and uh, tragically, one of her children's been taken into care by social services. The three children that still live with her suffer from a whole range of problems, and none of them are in education. And Ella says to me that she is repeating the cycle of her own mother's life before her. But when I met Ella, 
There were 73 different services on offer for her and her family in the city where she lives. 73 different services run out of 24 departments in one city. And Ella and her partners and her children were known to most of them. They think nothing of calling social services to try and mediate one of the many arguments that broke out. And the family home was visited on a regular basis by social workers, youth workers, a health officer, a housing officer, a home tutor, and the local policeman. And the government say that there are 100,000 families in Britain today, like Ella's, struggling to break this cycle of economic, social and environmental de deprivation. And they also say that managing this problem costs quarter of a million pounds per family per year, and yet nothing changes. None of these well-meaning visitors are making a difference. This is a chart we made in the same city with another family, like Ella's. This shows 30 years of intervention in that family's life. And just as with Ella, not one of these interventions is part of an overall plan. There's no end goal in sight. None of the interventions are dealing with the underlying issues. These are just containment measures, ways of managing a problem. Like one of the policemen says to me, look, I just deliver the message and then I leave. So I've spent time living with families like Ella's in different parts of the world because I want to know what can we learn from where, places where our social institutions just aren't working. I want to know what it feels like to live in Ella's family. I want to know what's going on and what we can do differently. Well, the first thing I learn is that cost is a really slippery concept. Because when the government says that a family like Ella's costs a quarter of a million pounds a year to manage, what it really means is that this system costs a quarter of a million pounds a year. Because not one penny of this money actually touches Ella's family in a way that makes a difference. Instead, the system is just like this costly gyroscope that spins around the families, keeping them stuck at its heart exactly where they are. And I also spend time with the frontline workers, and I learn that it is an impossible situation. So Tom, who is the social worker for uh, Ella's 14-year-old son, Ryan, has to spend 86% of his time servicing this system. Meetings with colleagues, filling out forms, more meetings with colleagues to discuss the forms, and maybe most shockingly, the 14% of time he has to be with Ryan is spent getting data and information for the system. So he says to Ryan, how often have you been smoking? Have you been drinking? When did you go to school? And this kind of interaction rules out the possibility of a normal conversation. It rules out the possibility of what's needed to build a relationship between Tom and Ryan. When we made this chart, the frontline workers, the professionals, they stared at it absolutely amazed. It snaked around the walls of their offices. So many hours, so well meant, but ultimately so futile. And there was this moment of absolute breakdown, and then of clarity. We had to work in a different way. So in a really brave step, the leaders of the city where Ella lives agreed that we could start by reversing Ryan's ratio. So everyone who came into contact with Ella or a family like Ella's would spend 80% of their time working with the families and only 20% servicing the system. And even more radically, the families would lead and they would decide who was in the best position to help them. So Ella and another mother were asked to be part of an interview panel to choose from amongst existing professionals who would work with them. And many, many people wanted to join us because you don't go into this kind of work to manage a system. You go in because you can and you want to make a difference. So Ella and the mother asked everybody who came through the door, what will you do when my son starts kicking me? And so the first person who comes in says, well, uh, I'll look round for the nearest exit, and I will back out very slowly, and uh, if the noise is still going on, I'll call my supervisor. And the mothers go, you're the system, get out of here! And then the next person who comes is a policeman, and he says, well, I'll tackle your son to the ground, and then 
I'm not sure what I'll do. And the mother say, thank you. So they chose professionals who confessed they didn't necessarily have the answers, who said that, you know, well, they weren't going to talk in jargon, they showed their human qualities and convinced the mothers that they would stick with them through thick and thin, even though they wouldn't be soft with them. So these new teams and the families were then given a sliver of the former budget, but they could spend the money in any way they chose. And so one of the families went out for supper. They went to McDonald's and they sat down and they talked and they listened for the first time in a long time. Another family asked the um, team if they would help them do up their home. And one mother took the money and she used it as a float to start a social enterprise. And in a really short space of time, something new started to grow a relationship between the team and the workers. And then some remarkable changes took place. So maybe it's not surprising that the journey for Ella's had some big steps backwards as well as forwards. But today, she's completed an IT training course, she has her first paid job, her children are back in school, and the neighbours, who previously just hoped that this family would be moved anywhere except next door to them, are, are fine, they've made some new friendships. And all the same people have been involved in this transformation. Same families, same workers, but the relationship between them has been supported to change. So I'm telling you about Ella because I think that relationships are the critical resource we have in solving some of these intractable problems. But today, our relationships are all but written off by our politics, our social policies, our welfare institutions. And I've learned that this really has to change. So what do I mean by relationships? I'm talking about the simple human bonds between us, a kind of authentic sense of connection, of belonging, the bonds that make us happy, that support us to change, to be brave like Ella and try something new. And you know, it's no accident that those who run and work in the institutions that are supposed to support Ella and her family don't talk about relationships, because relationships were expressly designed out of a welfare model that was drawn up in Britain and exported around the world. The contemporaries of William Beveridge, who was the architect of the first welfare state and the author of the Beveridge Report, had little faith in what they called the average sensual or emotional man. Instead, they trusted this idea of the impersonal system and the bureaucrat who would be detached and work in this system. And the impact of Beveridge on the way the modern state sees social issues just can't be underestimated. The Beveridge Report sold over 100,000 copies in the first weeks of publication alone. People queued in the rain in a November night to get hold of a copy, and it was read across the country, across the colonies, across Europe, across the United States of America. And it had this huge impact on the way that welfare states were designed around the globe. The cultures, the bureaucracies, the institutions, they are global, and they've come to seem like common sense. They've come so, so ingrained in us that actually we don't even see them anymore. And I think it's really important to say that in the 20th century, they were remarkably successful, these institutions. They led to longer lifespans, the eradication of mass disease, mass housing, almost universal education. But at the same time, Beveridge sowed the seeds of today's challenges. So let me tell you a second story. What do you think today is a bigger killer than a lifetime of smoking? It's loneliness. According to government statistics, one person over 60, one in three, doesn't speak to or see another person in a week. 
One person in ten, that's 850,000 people, doesn't speak to anyone else in a month. And we're not the only people with this problem. This problem touches the whole of the Western world. And it's even more acute in countries like China, where a process of rapid urbanization, mass migration has left older people alone in the villages. And so the services that Beveridge designed and exported, they can't address this kind of problem. Loneliness is like a collective relational challenge, and it can't be addressed by a traditional bureaucratic response. So some years ago, wanting to understand this problem, I started to work with a group of about 60 older people in South London, where I live. I went shopping, I played bingo, but mainly I was just observing and listening. I wanted to know what we could do differently. And if you ask them, people tell you they want two things. They want somebody to go up a ladder and change a light bulb, or to be there when they come out of hospital. They want on-demand practical support. And they want to have fun. They want to go out, do interesting things with like-minded people, and make friends like we've all made friends at every stage of our lives. So we rented a phone line, hired a couple of handymen, and started a service we called Circle. And Circle offers its local membership a toll-free 0800 number that they can call on demand for any support. And people have called us for so many reasons. They've called because their pets are unwell, their DVD's broken, they've forgotten how to use their mobile phone, or maybe they are coming out of hospital and they want someone to be there. And Circle also offers a rich social calendar. Knitting, darts, museum tours, hot air ballooning, you name it. But here's the interesting thing, the really deep change. Over time, the friendships that have formed have begun to replace the practical offer. So let me tell you about Belinda. Belinda's a Circle member, and she was going into hospital for hip operations, so she called her local Circle to say they wouldn't see her for a bit. And Damien, who runs the local Circle, calls her back and says, how can I help? And Belinda says, oh, no, I'm fine. Jocelyn is doing the shopping, Tony's doing the gardening, Melissa and Joe are going to come in and cook and chat. So five Circle members had organized themselves to take care of Belinda. And Belinda's 80, although she says that she feels 25 inside, but she also says that she felt stuck and pretty down when she joined Circle. But the simple act of encouraging her to come along to that first event led to a process where natural friendships formed, Friendships that today are replacing the need for expensive services. It's relationships that are making the difference. So I think that three factors have converged that enable us to put relationships at the heart and center of how we solve social problems today. Firstly, the nature of the problems. They've changed and they require different solutions. Secondly, the cost, human as much as financial, of doing business as usual. And thirdly, technology. So I've talked about the first two factors. It's technology that enables these approaches to scale and potentially now support thousands of people. So the technology we've used is really simple. It's made up of available things like databases, mobile phones. Circle has got this very simple system that underpins it, enables a small local team to support a membership of up to 1,000. And you can contrast this with the neighborhood organization of the 1970s, when this kind of scale just wasn't possible. Neither was the quality or the longevity that the spine of technology can provide. So it's relationships underpinned by technology that can turn the beverage models on their heads. The beverage models are all about institutions with finite resources anonymously managing access. 
In my work at the front line, I've seen again and again how up to 80% of resource is spent keeping people out. So professionals have to administer these increasingly complex forms of administration that are basically about stopping people accessing the service or managing the queue. And Circle, like the relational services that we and others have designed, inverts this logic. What it says is, the more people, the more relationships, the stronger the solution. So I want to tell you my third and final story, which is about unemployment. In Britain, as in most places in the world, our welfare states were primarily designed to uh, get people into work, to educate them for this and to keep them healthy. But here, too, the systems are failing. And so the response has been to try and make these old systems even more efficient and transactional, to speed up processing times, divide people into ever smaller categories, try and target services at them more efficiently. In other words, the very opposite of relational. But guess how most people find work today? Through word of mouth. It turns out that in Britain today, most new jobs are not advertised. So it's friends that tell you about a job, it's friends that recommend you for a job, and it's a rich and diverse social network that helps you find work. And maybe some of you here this evening are thinking, but I found my job through an advert. But if you think back, it was probably a friend that showed you the ad and then encouraged you to apply. But not surprisingly, people who perhaps most need this rich and diverse network are those who are most isolated from it. So knowing this, and also knowing about the cost and failure of current systems, we designed something new with relationships at its heart. We designed a, a service that encourages people to meet up, people in and out of work, to work together in structured ways and try new opportunities. And, uh, well, it's very hard to compare the results of these new systems with the old transactional models, but it looks like with our first thousand members, we outperformed existing services by a factor of three at a fraction of the cost. And here, too, we've used technology. But not to network people in the way that a social platform would do. We've used it to bring people face to face and connect them with each other, building real relationships and supporting people to find work. At the end of his life, 1948, Beveridge wrote a third report. And in it, he said he had made a dreadful mistake. He had left people and their communities out. And this omission, he said, led to people, to seeing people, and people starting to see themselves within the categories of the bureaucracies and the institutions. And human relationships were already withering. But unfortunately, this third report was much less read than Beveridge's earlier work. But today, we need to bring people and their communities back into the heart of the way we design new systems and new services, an approach that I call relational welfare. We need to leave behind these old, transactional, unsuitable, outdated models, and we need to adopt instead the shared, collective, relational responses that can support a family like Ella's, that can address an issue like loneliness, that can support people into work and up the skills curve in a modern labour market, that can also address challenges of education, of healthcare systems, and so many more of those problems that are pressing on our societies. It is all about relationships. Relationships are the critical resource we have. That was Hilary Cottom, 
redefining relationships within our social services. You are listening to Out of the Fog on CKUT 90.3 FM. We're arriving at part two. The following is a Skype conversation I had with Rebecca Reynolds. She works in the UK with vulnerable families, and more precisely, with mothers under 19. The service she's offering is part of the Family Nurse Partnership Program, also shortened to the FNP. The program that I work with is a licensed prescriptive program, meaning that I would deliver certain um, kind of structured visits at periodic points throughout their baby's development and growth to help them be able to be attuned to what their baby needs. Um, but it's also around self-efficacy, so building a sense of worthiness, um, the idea being that it's kind of an early intervention prevention program to break intergenerational um, kind of social deprivation, if you like. Do you think there might be this worry in society that if we're working with these families instead of removing the children early at, at an early mm-hmm. stage is putting the child's life at risk. Do you think mm. that fear is legitimate? Uh, no. <laughs> but then I am, I'm providing a program that is designed to, you know, break that cycle of intergenerational abuse, if you will, you know, that actually what was done to that, that client as a child doesn't mean that she's then going to fall into that same um, pattern with her baby. Um, and it is by things of looking at the bonding and attachment and you know the ethos of FMP is that actually it's channeling into that innate um, human factor of every mother wants to do the best thing for their baby and FMP believes that every baby deserves you know a good life that every baby matters so so why wouldn't you spend the time to explore with someone the journey that they've had to this point where they've made a baby and then why wouldn't you be supporting them with, you know, going forward with this amazing life-affirming journey of having a child? Um, and, you know, you'll hit bumps across the road. Of course you will. And everybody comes to that journey with different baggage. But we have the tools to be able to support that. And and actually, you know, saying that a damaged child or a damaged client can't then have a baby because they're going to do the same thing. Oh, it just goes against everything that FMP stands for. Um, so yeah, we're, we're there for kind of the early intervention. We're there to kind of recognize that there might be some things of concern, but we support that in a way of honesty, open, you know, transparency. Um, and we would be looking to explore with the client why they're making the decisions that they're making, trying to walk in their shoes, trying to empathize rather than sympathize and really get a sense of how they've made these decisions to be able to get to this point and then it's kind of unpicking that with recognizing change behaviors and just grabbing that little bit of that little bit of light when you think yes we can do this that we can make a change and it is going to be positive and then nurturing that throughout the program and that's when you see the change that's when it works it's unfortunate that this service isn't offered to everyone um, mm. but yeah so I, I don't believe that you know, that is something that is plaguing today's society. Well, I hope it isn't anyway. Mm-hmm. Would you have a personal experience to share um, of a intervention that you did that was successful? 
Um, so when we talk about the concept of love, we look at trust, and you know, because that is the foundation of love. And then you look at how am I going to describe this? How am I going to get this concept across that actually, in order for my client to be able to care for her baby, she needs to understand that her baby needs to trust her, and that isn't something that babies are born with straight away. You know, they they, they think that they're not going to get their mums back. You know, they've got a two-second memory. How am I going to get that across to her? So I would look at her previous experiences of what love means to her or what trust means to her and I've got um, like a friendship bracelet that I would build with her and each time that I'm threading over one of the threads to kind of make the, um, the knot of the friendship bracelet we're looking at somebody that she's thought of that she would have trusted in her childhood. So it could be a grandparent, it could be her father, it could be her mother, it could be her auntie. And I would be asking her to say, tell me about the things that they did with you to make you feel safe, secure, trust, you know, that knew that you could trust them. So every time that she'd describe an activity, whether it was taking me to the beach, buying me an ice cream, spending time with me on Sunday, reading me a bedtime story, every time one of those activities that she was describing was a positive thing, we'd be folding over these threads to make this friendship bracelet. And I'd be saying to her that one of these threads is how you are going to be with your baby. So just like you've said to me, you can create these memories with your child. And then how would that make you feel? And then you reflect it back to them. And you often see that kind of light bulb moment of, oh, okay, so my baby needs time. My baby needs to be provided for. My baby needs to know that actually it doesn't matter if if something goes wrong, that I'm always going to be there. And that can be quite an effective tool to use. It's it's quite interesting what you're saying because it feels like it's tools that everyone should learn at school, even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's visual for one thing. So it sticks with me because I'm quite a visual learner. Um, but I enjoy it as well. But it's also something that, you know, we, you and I could do this. This isn't something that I've been taught specifically about you know, how to, you know, grow up, make your child be the best child it can be by doing that specific thing. It's more kind of looking at, you know, loving, trusting, safe relationships and, and how we see that. And a lot of the time it's it's stuff that could be done at school, you're right. But it's just, is not seen as important until we get to where I'm at, where I've got, you know, a pregnant 14-year-old that's having a baby. And, you know, it's, it's exploring what trust and love and respect even is um, for that person you get a better sense of what kind of mother they're going to be when you explore those things how much does it cost for the government every year off the top of my head i don't know um but i know that if we were doing a stark cost comparison of what it would cost to take a child into care then we're cheap (laughs) (laughs) and because because having a child in, into uh, into care is really expensive, is it? Yeah, in the UK it is the kind of the foster pa- placements, the legal costs, the you know it, the looking at the long term um, prospects for that child compared to two years with a family nurse. Um, yeah. yeah, the long term cost is expensive for putting a child in care. So, what would make sense to uh, long term? benefits wouldn't make sense for um like a a person from the government working in the finance department and trying to cut 
uh, trying to yeah. make ends meet. Correct. Yeah, I, th I think potentially if if they're being told you're overspent already moving into the next financial year, you need to save X amount of money and potentially one of the quickest and easiest ways to do that would be to get rid of a service that is proven to be expensive in their eyes um, and would be a quick gain in terms of finances, then that might be um, something that they would consider. Unfortunately, it's not it seemed more as kind of reactive rather than proactive, I think, because these women aren't going away. They're still going to have these babies and they're still going to need the support. And actually the universal services probably won't measure up to, you know, what we would offer. And then I think you'll find the, the kind of implications for that a few years later will be when there are children that aren't school ready, when there are mums that are struggling, struggling to, you know, witness their baby's cues when it regards to baby led feeding and etc etc so the impact potentially is is greater but that would be seen initially in the kind of long term i think rather than now that was rebecca reynolds a nurse re-empowering vulnerable families one by one in the uk you are listening to out of the fog on ckut 90.3 fm and i'm pascal your host for today We'll be back at the same time on the first Friday of next month. Thanks for listening.